coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. But meat does have a factor which I think needs to be accounted for that can be potentially dangerous, and that is meat is very high also in methionine, cysteine, especially the muscle meats, and tryptophan. Uh, tryptophan is the only amino acid that is carcinogenic, um, and is basically, I think if you're, uh, if, you're, if you're eating a meat diet and you're eating, I don't know, 200, 300 grams of protein daily, you're probably getting maybe about a gram of tryptophan, which I think is, is, is more than optimal. And the reason I, I say that, I'm sorry, it's less than optimal. In other words, it's bad for you. Because the multiple studies have shown, and even in humans now, recently confirmed that tryptophan restriction can mimic all of the life-extending benefits of caloric restriction. In other words, and the same thing was seen for methionine restriction and for cysteine restriction. In fact, if you restrict methionine, you can cure type 2 diabetes in humans. There is a great study and reverse obesity. These, a lot of these people that the study looked at were morbidly obese. So if you're eating predominantly meat, you're going to be getting probably more than what you need for optimal health of these three amino acids. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I have a friendly debate between bioenergetic health researcher Georgie Dinkoff and the neurosurgeon carnivore Dr. Anthony Chafee. We discuss differences between a carnivore diet and a pro-metabolic diet, along with three amino acids that might get too high on a carnivore diet, the importance of collagen in your diet, is excess sugar or cortisol causing obesity, aspirin's role in lowering lipolysis, lowering PUFAs to obtain optimal health, and much, much more. Well, I really enjoyed this debate between Georgie and Dr. Anthony. I know you will too. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin. I have Georgie Dinkoff on and Dr. Anthony Chafee. Welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah. Second time around for both of you. Uh, actually, no, uh, Georgie. No, yes. Yeah, second time for Georgie, I think, too. Um, yeah, I'm excited to have you both on. Uh, I think most of the people listening have an idea of you know sort of your background, but maybe just a brief synopsis. I know, obviously, Dr. Chafee full-on carnivore, and Georgie's from sort of the bioenergetic viewpoint. Maybe just give a you know small intro of, of sort of um, your reasonings why you sort of got into that style of eating or um, you know that thought process. So, um, Dr. Chafee, why don't you start? Sure. Well, so I've, I've spent you know, quite a long time uh, studying nutrition and biology. I studied nutrition in my undergraduate degree. And obviously, uh, as pre-med, you, you generally study a lot of biology. So I was, I was quite interested in that. I was interested in that because I was uh, also an athlete and I wanted to fuel my body with the best thing possible. Now, as a, as a clinician, it's, uh, it's one of the more powerful tools that I've seen uh, in getting people healthy is cleaning up their diet. And there's a number of different ways to do that. And I've come to the conclusion that I think just a meat-based approach, as many or most of our ancestors uh, did, is, is probably the best way of doing it. Uh, I certainly don't think it's the only way of doing it. However, I, I do think that it's it's one of the better ways, if not the best way. Uh, reason being is just that uh, plants and, well, we've evolved and are biologically designed to eat meat. There are a lot of examples of that in current traditional populations going back hundreds of years, thousands of years. Uh, before the ice ages, really wasn't more to eat than meat. And uh, we not only 
survive, but we thrive, which is very hard to do in an ice age if you're not very, very healthy. Um, and then studying botany, biology, cancer biology in my undergraduate degree, it became clear that that plants are living organisms. They like to stay living organisms and they defend themselves by using chemical means uh, amongst other things. And, and those things can be harmful to us, some more than others. Um, but most plants on earth uh, are actually toxic and deadly. And the ones that are edible uh, are less so obviously, but we have more defenses against them, but that doesn't mean that they're completely benign. And so I just try to raise awareness of, about that fact. And especially when people are more sensitive to that, have autoimmune issues, and uh, and other sort of medical conditions, it can be quite helpful if they just cut out all plant material and just go to a high fat meat based diet. And uh, I found that to be very effective in uh, my practice. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, Georgie, maybe a little bit about the bioenergetic viewpoint. I think it actually overlaps quite a bit with uh, what what Dr. Chaffee just said. Um, for some reason, people think that uh, bioenergetic or, or the Peterian diet is somehow anti meat. It is not. In fact, we think it's better to uh, probably eat a meat-based diet uh, as long as you factor in a couple of things. Number one, uh, some insoluble fiber in order to stimulate um, uh, intestinal motility. Uh, when you're eating a high-protein, uh, high-meat diet, you certainly don't want your digestion to slow because um, uh, the microbiome can produce some pretty toxic compounds uh, from meat, such as putrescine, cadaverine. Just the names are basically kind of telling you that these are... Uh, uh, kind of toxic amines that can be produced from meat if if your digestion is not fast enough and we're and the bioenergetic view basically says we eat all the meat you want as long as you ensure that your digestion is quick so you process the meat properly number one number one number two make sure you're eating sufficient amount of carb uh, because the protein if you're not eating sufficient amount of carbohydrates uh protein uh is very insulinogenic at least the one that it, that is in meat is so it's going to raise your insulin, um, and basically once the blood glucose drops, you're going to get a stress reaction. Um, so, And also if you don't eat sufficient amount of carbohydrates with the meat, part of the protein will get metabolized into glucose through the process of gluconeogenesis. So, And that we don't want that because the process of deamination of a lot of these amino acids that are in the meat is actually pretty toxic, and you're going to be producing a lot of ammonia. Um, in fact, uh, we, there are several studies published on the fact that if you eat too much meat and not enough carbs, you can get into a hyperammonemic state, which I think Dr. Chaffee would agree is, is uh, certainly not optimal. So the biogenic view, really, it can be uh, kind of uh, fit into the um, carnivore um, uh, 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 paradigm as long as we're taking care of the fiber as long as we're taking care of the carbohydrates and um, uh, and also finally meat has a as a I, I would say a suboptimal ratio of calcium to phosphorus in favor of the phosphorus uh, and the phosphorus can have an anti-metabolic effect um, so if you're going to be eating meat uh, the bioenergetic view says make sure you supplement with sufficient amount of calcium but the ratio of calcium to phosphorus is at least one to one uh, not as in this basically if you're eating only meat or predominantly meat I think you're going to be eating a calcium to phosphorus ratio that's basically one to four in favor of phosphorus. In favor of phosphorus, and we don't think that's optimal. Uh, my background is entirely um, what should I call it? Un informal. Um, my my academic training is in computer science, uh, but when I when I graduated, I basically uh, was looking for a job in the early 2000s. That was right after the dot com crash. Nobody wanted to hire people like me. So I had to become a programmer for a biomedical research foundation. That that was actually the name. And I was working with, you know, 40 to 50 of some of the brightest doctors and biochemists and geneticists that are were here in the United States. And a lot of them were it, coming from international institutions, too. So I spent three years with these people, and it was I was only one of two people that were non, 
sort of like non-medically inclined there. And I wanted to learn the lingo and, you know, get involved in the conversations. And uh, they gave me a few books to read. Um, and I started going to the lectures. And then after that, he's been reading PubMed studies. And now lately, over the last two or three years, doing my own studies, actually, in vivo and in vitro with a lab um, out in Asia. So that's really my background. It's entirely as a hobby. Um, and actually, my day job is in is in the IT sector. Thanks, George. Oh, former athlete, just like uh, Dr. Dr. Chatty. Um, and actually, I was uh, more or less 100% carnivore circa 2009-2010, but I made the mistake of going very low carb, and that actually kind of created problems for me. So um, since then, I've moved uh, you know away from the from the from the low carb diet, but I certainly uh, eat meat. So I will probably be about considered about 80%. Uh, carnivorous diet if, if if we look at the the macronutrients that are being covered by the pure carnivore diet um so yeah i i would say our dietary habits probably overlap a lot more than than you know people would think on the surface just based on you know what people know about carnivore diet and the bioenergetic one thanks georgie uh dr chafe any thoughts about that i mean i'll let you speak i don't yeah um yeah oh what well, look i i i you know, I, I certainly think that um, you know a lot. A lot of that has merit. You know, I mean, specifically, you know, with the protein. You know, if you if you are getting too high of protein, that can cause problems. I mean, you do make you you, you when you you're clipping off these you know, amino groups, they do go into amino, uh, ammonia. Then you turn that into your urea. You you excrete that. Higher urea is actually okay, though. It's actually a very good uh, antioxidant. Obviously, yep. you don't want it in the ammonia phase. But then when it gets into the urea, it's actually it's actually quite beneficial. If you are eating enough fat, though, you don't. It, it, you, you can have too. You can have enough carbs to offset the protein. You can also have enough fat to offset the protein as well. And there's certainly things about, you know, uh, uh, rabbit starvation or protein poisoning, where people are really just predominantly getting the majority of their calories from protein. That can certainly cause problems. But you don't generally see that if people are getting enough fat. So I think that you can at, can get enough fat. Or enough carbohydrates and and uh, not have that issue uh, with protein. And there are certainly traditional groups like the Inuit or the Maasai eat a very high fat diet, not much carbs. Um, you know the the, the National uh, sorry the National Academy of Science and the Institute of Medicine and National Academies have said that the lower limit of carbohydrates is essentially zero. Um, that these traditional populations don't eat any carbs, don't eat them generationally. And apparently don't have any sort of health ramifications from that as long as they're getting enough protein and fat. So that that's obviously the caveat is you need the rest of the, the macronutrients. Um, as far as uh, the bowels are concerned, I've, I've found in, in my practice and in myself that if you do eat enough fat to the point that your body absorbs all the fat that's a, that's it's wanting to, right? We have a limited capacity to absorb fat with the bile that we have. And uh, once we run out of that, it's difficult for our bodies to absorb fat. You can you can absorb some, but it's it's you know small fraction of uh, of the amount of fat that goes out, and that fat actually you know lubricates things, keeps things soft, and moves things through. So I find that people have have quite normal stools. It's also important to note that yes, those those putrefaction uh, processes can happen. They generally happen when you're eating a mixed diet with a lot of fiber actually, and a lot of uh, digestive disruptors and protease inhibitors yeah. that stop your body from absorbing these sorts of things in the first place. Otherwise, if you're just eating meat, you generally absorb around 98% of the meat that you're eating. Dr. Salisbury in the 1800 actually got this up by grinding meat in such a way that filtered out the gristle. And basically people were absorbing hundred percent of the meat that they were eating. So it didn't get down to their 
uh, colon in the first place. So it didn't get, get that process. Um, there can be a problem with putrefaction. Uh, apart from that, we don't generally see that as much if people are eating enough fat and they're not eating other things that can block digestion. Um, and, uh, and as far as ratios, I, I, I would agree in a lot of different ways, you need, you know, very specific ratios. If you are eating a, a different diet or a mixed diet, you, you generally need a different constellation of, uh, protein or you know, proteins, but also vitamins and minerals as well. There are a lot of reasons for this. Our body metabolizes nutrients differently, depending on what we eat. There are different things in plants that can actually disrupt the absorption of uh, different minerals like oxalates can bind calcium, strip them out of your body. That can actually strip them out of your bones. Uh, there's studies in the 1950s uh, giving people a lot of uh, spinach because spinach is high in calcium. And they said, okay, well, we'll give them, is this a good source of calcium? They'll raise their calcium levels. And they found their actual calcium levels dropped because of, yeah. they were bound up in ways that weren't bioavailable. And the oxalates were actually stripping calcium out of their serum as well. So, you know, I, I would agree with that, but with the caveat that we haven't really studied exactly what the ratios are, are necessary for if you are only eating meat. You may look at, look at uh, vitamin C. People say, well, there's not enough vitamin C in meat. Well, if you're if you're going by the RDAs, that's that's true. But if you understand the fact that that carbohydrates block out the absorption and utilization of vitamin C because they go, but they both get drawn in by the GLUT4 receptor, and carbohydrates can drown out the vitamin C, so you need an abundance of vitamin C to get yeah. enough in. And that vitamin C, in the context of scurvy, catalyzes the hydroxyl uh, hydrolyzation of proline and lysine to make properly bound collagen. But if you're eating a lot of meat, you're getting that prehydrolyzed proteins, and you don't you don't need as much. So you need milligrams of vitamin C if you're eating carbohydrates, and you need nanograms of vitamin C if you're not. So there's a, there's a million fold difference there, and uh, it, it would be good to study the ratios that we need. Uh, on a carnivore diet with these other things as well. And I think you'll find that they probably work out just well. I mean, I have patients that have been, were uh, vegan, anorexic. They were borderline osteoporotic at 40 years old. They were carnivore for one year and they're now they're borderline uh, normal bone density. So that's, that's a massive change. And in medicine, we, we say, and we teach that you can only build bone density up to the age of 25 and then you just start losing it. But that is, is exactly the opposite of what we see in practice. And, you know, again, we have these populations like the Inuit, like people going through the ice ages that some of them exclusively ate meat. Others were close to it and they did very, very well. And, you know, they had very strong bones and we have their, have their bones in the fossil record. And it was, it was actually after agricultural revolution that they became more short stature, smaller brains and, and weaker bones and more signs of fractures and poor wound healing, tuberculosis, things like that. And so it does appear that before the agricultural revolution, when people were predominantly eating meat, and then during the ice ages, when really, you know, if you're really up north, you're exclusively eating meat because there's nothing else to eat. People are actually thriving, and so I think that there's there's a difference there. And so if you're only eating meat, I would argue that you get, you know, everything that you need in the proportion that you need it. Okay, a uh, couple of things from me. I agree 100% with the statement that if you eat meat, you're going to be healthier than if you're eating vegetables, especially uh, with the current craze of eating the vegetables mostly raw. That's uh, that's abysmal to me. I mean, as you mentioned, there are many metabolic inhibitors inside. The uh, vegetables are actually the largest source of phytoestrogens, and there are these phenolic molecules, natural, naturally occurring estrogens that are, that are ubiquitous. So if you're going to be eating a plant, chances are you're ingesting 
are more than optimal if you if you think estrogen is even optimal to start with are more than optimal amount of phytoestrogen and no matter what the medical industry is trying to tell you that phytoestrogens are good for your bones good for your breasts etc we're finding the opposite is true with things like like soy consumption it shrinks male testicles causes male and female female infertility there was a big craze of feeding women soy menopausal women soy because it replaces their supposedly naturally declining estrogen that actually resulted in skyrocketing rates of breast cancer estrogen receptor positive breast cancer so really if you, if you have to choose between eating plants and eating meat to me that's a no no uh, non-brainer you go with the meat you're going to be healthier 10 days out of 10. Uh, a couple of things about the culture consuming mostly meat. Um, I've actually looked at this and I did some studies on the on various meats myself. Uh, I think it's a bit of a uh, myth that meat is low in carbs. Uh, fresh meat, which is up to a week after the animal has been slaughtered, is actually very high glycogen content. Glycogen is mostly stored in the liver and the muscles. So if you're consuming fresh meat, you're consuming a sufficient sufficient amount of carbs. So I think that can actually probably account for the fact that uh, you know uh, you can eat only meat diet, and as long as it's fresh meat diet, uh, you're actually probably going to be thriving, uh, especially compared to eating plants. It's also uh, relatively high levels of vitamin C in the meat as well. That may also kind of explain why, if you're eating predominantly meat diet, if it's fresh meat, you don't have as me- as uh, as much need of, to consume preformed vitamin C. Um, however, if the meat is aged, cured, or in general, you know, meat basically is uh, after a week old, uh, it can reliably cause scurvy, um, which kind of shows that uh, there's something going on in the meat, uh, probably due to the putrefaction and maybe degradation of vitamin C because the molecule resembles carbohydrates so much. Um, and most of the the like the, the the expeditions that were on these big on these ships that lasted months or even years back in the 14, 15, 1600s, um, they a lot of sailors were getting scurvy even though their diet was actually mostly dry cured meat. So they had so they had to start carrying these citrus fruits with them uh, to basically cure the scurvy before the vitamin C was isolated. So fresh meat is great. Aged meat, I would say not so much. Another thing that, that there's some publications on and that, that I confirmed with my studies is that uh, after about uh, nine days, the amount of endotoxin in the meat starts to rise. And I think the reason is there's bacteria that basically that starts to grow and feed on the meat. Um, and the gram-negative bacteria that processes uh, the amino acids uh, in the process of increasing its turnover because the bacterial colony starts to grow when you feed it, of course, um, they release endotoxin. And endotoxin is uh, definitely not good, not something we want to we want to get into a bloodstream. Yes, we are eating the meat, and a lot of uh, doctors will probably say, well, you're not absorbing that much because it will stay in the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, studies have shown that that's not true. If you're eating aged steak, um, the endotoxemia in the blood rises. So you're getting basically, you can detect uh, 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 you know, five to six times higher endotoxin than if you're not eating the aged meat. The same thing is not seen with fresh meat. So I think it really matters whether you're eating fresh meat or not. If you if you're not eating fresh meat, if you're eating aged, cured, etc., other meats that have stayed um, in an environment where bacteria has access uh, to that meat, then you're probably drastically de- decreasing the the benefits of that meat. Uh, as far as the Maasai, um, uh, from what I understand, their diet it actually includes a lot of milk, blood, and meat. Um, so the milk has quite a bit of lactose, so I think they're getting some of the sugar from there as well. And also the fresh meat, which from what I understand, Maasai actually sometimes eat even raw, and they prefer it raw. This is very, very fresh meat. So I think they're getting probably a sufficient amount of carbohydrates based on the, the, the concentration of sugar that we're seeing in fresh meat. They're getting protein to carb ratio of about one to two, which is perfect, uh, without them having to consume additional preformed sugar uh uh, well, obviously, they're living in the wild. So, so that, but from what I'm saying, they don't even prefer to eat ripe fruit. 
they're perfectly fine on drinking their milk, drinking the blood, mixing milk with blood. I think it's one of their famous drinks and also eating the fresh meat. So as long as you're eating the fresh meat, I think as far as the macronutrients are concerned, almost everything is covered except potentially the calcium to phosphorus. But Dr. Chaffee says we don't know yet what is optimal. And that's true. I don't think there have been any studies saying like, well, let's feed these people a calcium deficient diet it, uh, and then pump them full of phosphorus and see what happens. I don't think a study like that has happened. Most of the evidence that I cite of uh, the ratio being anti-metabolic, if you increase phosphorus too much, is from in vitro studies and animal studies. We haven't had a human study. I, I, would, I would agree with that. Um, but meat does have a factor which I think needs to be accounted for that can be potentially dangerous, and that is meat is very high also in methionine, cysteine, especially the muscle meats, and tryptophan. Uh, tryptophan is the only amino acid that is carcinogenic, um, and is basically. I think if you uh, if you if you're eating a meat diet and you're eating I don't know 200 300 grams of protein daily, you're probably getting maybe about a gram of tryptophan, which I think is 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 more than optimal. And the reason I, I say that I'm sorry, it's less than optimal. In other words, it's bad for you, because the multiple studies have shown, and even in humans now recently confirmed that. Tryptophan restriction can mimic all of the life-extending benefits of caloric restriction. In other words, and the same thing was seen for methionine restriction and for cysteine restriction. In fact, if you restrict methionine, you can cure type 2 diabetes in humans. There is a great study. And reverse obesity. These, a lot of these people that the study looked at were morbidly obese. So if you're eating predominantly meat, you're going to be getting probably more than what you need for optimal health of these three amino acids. And... Uh, 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 they're as far as the methionine and the cysteine, they're known to be anti-thyroid. They're suppressing the release of thyroid hormones from the from the thyroid gland. Um, so uh, the way this was traditionally balanced, I think, in the cultures is that the, these cultures consumed also a lot of collagen, right? So they were eating the meat, but they're also eating a lot of the uh, connective tissue. They were eating a lot of skin, uh, and if that is the case, then a lot of the the glycine, the proline, the hydroxyproline, and the gelatin can actually offset a lot of those pro-inflammatory, anti-metabolic effects that methionine, cysteine, and tryptophan have. But if you're eating pure muscle meat, you're getting basically a lot of these uh, suboptimal uh, of these three amino acids in quantities uh, that are basically probably having potentially a negative effect on your health unless they're being balanced by these other amino acids, which are known to be anti-inflammatory, such as glycine, proline, and hydroxyproline. Taurine is another very similar one. They all, they all happen to be, by the way, all these um, anti-inflammatory amino acids all happen to be GABA agonists, alanine, uh, glycine, and taurine, while methionine, cysteine, and tryptophan are GABA antagonists. So they're going to put your brain into a state of a little bit of excitotoxicity, if I could say that, um, if you're eating too much of those amino acids and they're not being balanced by the anti-inflammatory amino acids. So I think we're largely in agreement. It's just a question of, okay, how much meat you're eating? Is it fresh, right? Um, and also, uh, basically, are you doing something to putting the calcium to foster each side because there are no human studies yet that, that, that show what is the optimal ratio. I think the one, the other thing that I would potentially worry about is the, the excess of these three amino acids because they're mostly present in muscle meats. But if you're consuming organ meats, if you're consuming collagen, right? If you're eating the whole animal, which is what traditional traditionally is done in these, we call them primitive cultures, but I think they're very smart. We're the primitive ones. <laughs> We're eating crap. Uh, I, I think it's perfectly fine as a diet. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Thanks, Georgie. Dr. Chafee, did you, did you have anything or, yeah? Oh, yeah, just a couple comments. You know, I, yeah. I um, you know, I, I agree with a lot of that. And, you know, I do think that, um, 
that one of the things we need to again consider is that that some of these studies are looking at the different ratios and, and different benefits of tryptophan and all these sorts of things. Uh, they, they do happen in well, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in in studies that are again in a mixed diet, and so we don't really know exactly, you know, it, it, what does this mean for the just the the strict meat eater because you know there there aren't really enough of us to to uh, do that study with, and yeah. it's not a big a big enough population cohort that uh, people find it worthwhile to to study that specifically. They're sort of, sort of looking in the context of what people do on a normal uh, daily basis. Um, and so, uh, as far as the uh, dried and fresh meat is concerned, there are certainly populations that eat fresh meat. I agree with you. You know, the, the Maasai obviously do have uh, carbohydrates from the lactose. And so that's not a good example of, of one that doesn't use carbohydrates, but but there are others like the Inuit. Uh, they they do chew on skin and and uh, you know try to turn that into leather. That's that's sort of um, uh, something that they're known for. And the elderly Inuit, you know, if they can't chew their leather, if their teeth are worn out, then they say, okay, that's it. I, I'm not contributing, so I walk out into the snow and expose myself to nature. Um, so yes, that's definitely something that they do as well. Um, but the Native Americans are, you know, well known for making pemmican. They do a buffalo drop. They'd scare a herd of buffalo over a cliff. They'd fall and die, and they would dry and preserve them. And that, that's what they would eat for the majority of the year was dried meat mixed with rendered tallow. Uh, and we have evidence of this and and mammoth drops going back over a million years. And so our our ancestors have been, you know, using probably preserved meat or dried anyway, not with a bunch of chemicals and salts and things like that necessarily, um, which could possibly throw a wrench in the gears, adding uh, adding different sort of preservatives and chemicals uh, is probably not a great idea. But it is, it is likely that we have been doing this for quite some time. We've used uh, these sorts of pemmican iron rations in defeat armies. Uh, Napoleon, the Napoleonic Wars were basically fed on boiled down cows, put in jars. I think it's, that's the origin of Bovril. If anyone knows that wretched product, and that's that's what the uh, uh, was sort of shipped all over the world uh, to to feed uh, the Napoleon's armies. Um, so that you know, and, and then with with endotoxin thing, you know, there it, there is a major issue with. Uh, gut permeability and leaky gut when you're eating, you know, different sorts of things. So I would wonder if, you know, that those endotoxins wouldn't be kept out in someone who had a robust uh, digestive tract and didn't have that leaky gut. You know, I, I, I assume that that study was done in someone sort of eating a, a more, yeah, sort of, sort of a general diet. Uh, so I would wonder about that. I, I, you know, you know, endotoxins, not something you want, right. But, you know, and, and, and certainly if someone's worried about that, eating more fresh meat is something that they can certainly do. Um, I would wonder, and I would be interested in seeing studies, if someone didn't have leaky gut, would they still get that same endotoxin load? I, I would wonder that as well. Um, and uh, it was my understanding that the sailors getting scurvy were actually mostly eating like gruel and and, and things like that. And it was it was the officers that had access to meat because they were obviously more important. Um, you know, you have the, the, uh, the Vikings going back, you know, thousand plus years, you know, you know, Leif Erikson making it to North America, probably. Um, they, they predominantly used, you know, salted fish and meat and things like that. They had rope fish, um, which was just a sense of rotten fish. Uh, it just basically tasted like spoiled locks. And yeah. that was predominantly what they ate as well. It didn't seem to have those problems as well. And, you know, and, and, you know, there, there is some, 
vitamin C again in, in these sorts of means. And the thing is too, is that if you look at some of the, the nutritional data being put out by farmers that are, that are doing regenerative, regeneratively raised grass fed and finished cows, like just their muscle meat actually has a sufficient amount of vitamin C to meet the current RDAs in a mixed diet. So it, it does matter what you're eating. Um, I don't always get, uh, the, the regeneratively raised meat. I just go to Costco because that's what's around me. It's what's convenient. Um, and I, I haven't had a problem with that. I haven't had a patient that ever displayed any sort of symptoms of, um, of vitamin C deficiency. And there can obviously, obviously be more subtle cases. You can even suggested that you can develop atherosclerosis on a, on a suboptimal level of vitamin C well before you get scurvy. So, you know, it's not necessarily something that you spot right away, but I certainly haven't seen scurvy. And I, you know, I've been doing this for, for six years now, uh, really just meat and water, mostly muscle meat. Um, I do age it too slightly. So I put it, uh, you know, sort of do a wet age and, and a bit of dry, well, dry brining. I don't like, I don't like let it go to rot. There are people that do high meat, which like really let it rot and they, and they swear by it. I, I don't think I'm, there yet i don't think that's something i need to try <laughs> i think i'm feeling pretty good i don't i don't need another leg up uh but there's some people that, that that absolutely swear by it and they they say they feel amazing and they they say they don't want to do it it's gross the house stinks but they you know it's just sort of fixed all their problems and they feel so much better with it so i think it's i think it's i think it's very interesting uh to think about these things in general i think it's difficult to glean too much information off of these studies that don't really, you know, compared to what, what we're thinking about here, which is just a population that's only eating meat. And if you look at, at different traditional populations that are predominantly eating meat, and again, I like to go back to the, the ice ages and, you know, there are different populations that ate sort of different things and, and certainly would include some, you know, plants or carbs or something like that. But like during the ice ages, really, really didn't have that available. Um, so, you know, maybe it was a, something to do with the raw meat and you eating all the organs, eating nose to tail, but you know, there, there is evidence of these buff of mammoth drops and people having to, they have to sort of preserve. I mean, I guess you're sort of living in a freezer back in the ice age. You can just sort of leave it there, I guess. Uh, but I don't know what that does to it uh, or if they dried it. Uh, but the native Americans, you know, living in, in, in the plains of, uh, of, you know, uh, of America, uh, they, they really did just subside mostly on pemmican and uh, they didn't really eat much else maybe some some berries sometimes they there was reports they would put some in uh as like a small percentage like for a festive occasion or a celebration like a wedding or something like that um, but there are many many accounts if you go back to the early american explorers and settlers um talking about how they were actually just amazed that these guys just really didn't eat anything except meat especially up in uh, what is now southern canada uh, when you know, it was like the little ice age when it was really cold and it was just like there was nothing but snow for eight, nine months out of the year or really nine, 10 months out of the year. And they, they, I remember reading accounts of this actually, you know, back in school where they were talking about how, you know, well, I understand that during the winter they can't grow anything. So, you know, yes, you know, just eat meat the whole time, but you know, there's three months in the year that they can, they can, you know, live off the bounty of the land and, you know, grow crops and, but they don't, they really just eat meat the whole year round. The native Americans in Plains, um, the Plains Indians, they were found in, 
forget the name of the study, but it was it was a study, you know, not too long ago. They actually looked at you know the fossil records and records and historical records. They found that the Plains Indians in the 1800s were the tallest human beings on Earth as a population. Yeah. yeah, and they they were really just just eating meat, and they were even eating you know the dried meat as well. So I think that there's there's probably a significant difference in the nutritional demand when when you're just eating meat, and certainly there is glycogen in uh, muscle meat and liver. Um, and, uh, and that's probably good for us. I don't, I don't doubt that at all. Um, there's probably an argument some people make that, you know, if you eat a large bolus of meat in one go that you'll actually kick yourself out of ketosis and then sort of come back in, dip back in. And that's probably physiological and that's probably good for you. I don't know. I just go by first principles, you know, what, what are we sort of, uh, designed to eat? We've been eating meat for a long time. People have thrived on meat. So I just eat meat. And if my body's going in and out of ketosis, I'm happy that it knows what it's doing. Um, and there are some populations like the Inuit who, who really can't eat the, the organs because the, you yeah, know, too much vitamin A, toxicity. They'll, yeah, they'll get poisoned. Exactly. Yeah. So the marine mammals that they're eating or have such a high concentration of, of these vitamins, the fat soluble vitamins, they get, they'll get hypervitaminosis, uh, a usually. And so they, they traditionally don't eat the organs. They're really just eating the meat. Now they do chew on the skin and they'll eat a lot of connective tissue. And there's a bit of, of, uh, a bit more vitamin C and collagen and things like that. Um, so I think these things can be accounted for. And I think that regardless, if you're just eating meat or you're eating anything and you're feeling a bit off or something's off, get checked, check your bloods, see what's going on. If you need to supplement, you do. I have seen exactly two people that had like uh, actually a folate, you know, slightly low folate. They felt fine. They felt good. Um, but it was just like, okay, eat a bit more liver. They ate more liver, folate came back up. So, you know, uh, and you know, certain people are going to metabolize things a little differently. We're not eating wild animals. They're not, mostly aren't getting regeneratively raised. So, you know, there is a, a bit of a, of a paucity of nutrition, uh, nutritional components there. And some people, it, it, they may find that it's not enough for them. So I think that, uh, most people will be just fine though, uh, doing this. And there are populations that have been doing this, uh, since, you know, uh, time immemorial. Agreed. No, yeah. No, Little no. doubt that uh, uh, agricultural societies are basically the shortest in stature. They have the shortest lifespan. Um, uh, they have the highest rates of obesity uh, and generally poor health, also very poor dental health. Um, and I remember the Native Americans, one of the things that shocked really the set was that basically when I looked, when, I, when they look at even very old people, yeah, they lost some of their teeth, but there were no cavities in the teeth that were remaining. So the, the Native cultures, you know, knew what to eat. And it, it looks like when you leave people alone in nature without, you know, be, them being forced into a particular framework of what they should be eating, they tend to gravitate towards meat, eggs, and milk. Um, and, and you can see that also in people that live in the mountains who happen also to also be the tallest. Masai are very tall, even though they're, they're living in the savannah. Uh, but if you look at some of the mountainous cultures, uh, they're also very tall. That's what also they predominantly eat, uh, meat, egg, and, and, and milk, simply because... At that altitude, you're probably not going to be able to grow anything. But but I think there's also the fact that because uh, I know people who basically uh, they're they're from Nepal and they've they've lived in in a very high altitude all their lives. They have a distaste for vegetable. I don't know how to explain it. They don't like it, uh, no matter how you cook it. Even potatoes, uh, they find basically a natural to eat, and 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 their diets are just as the doctor said are basically mostly based on meat and milk and, and whatever dairy products are coming out of the milk. 
Yeah. One, I, I just I don't to... like vegetables either. <laughs> well, we know that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, one of the things, I mean, obviously, there's uh, there's things that obviously we can agree upon. Uh, protein, meat based diet. Uh, you know, the role of saturated fats, limiting PUFAs. But you know, one of the big differences is, is the fact that Dr. Chafee, I've heard you talk on you know numerous podcasts that you know carbs and sugar are this harmful substance that you know make you hungry, overeat, and can be addictive and almost calling it like a drug. And I don't know if you want to expand on that. Um, and then George, I'd love you to hear your opinion about that. Well, yeah, well, yeah, I, I certainly think that there is there's quite a lot of evidence to show that fructose probably should be classified as a drug. It's been shown to give a dopamine uh, response to the addiction centers of your brain, just like cocaine, heroin, and meth. And there are MRI studies showing that fructose, um, you know, basically fructose addiction, people are metabolically sick, uh, can actually kill the same areas of their brain as methamphetamine addicts and to the same extent as methamphetamine addicts. And God knows how long it took them both to get there. I'm not saying that it's going to necessarily do it as fast, but in this study, they, they both had the same endpoint, which was, you know, severely damaged area of their brain that relied on, on dopamine. And as you excite, you know, excitatory, um, molecules to your brain, like dopamine, turn on your, your brain cells, makes them stay on. This is toxic to the brain. They have to shut down. They have to turn off. You have to sleep. And that gets rid of these sort of toxic, um, neurotransmitter breakdown products, which for some reason, the breakdown products of our neurotransmitters are actually toxic to our brain, which I think is a terrible design, but uh, that's what it is. And so if you're constantly stimulating your brain and your neurons with dopamine, and you're not allowing them to turn off and clean up and, and repair, they will eventually die. And so that, that has been shown in MRI studies as well. Um, they can also have hormonal effects. You know, they obviously you you eat carbohydrates. This can damage your body. High blood sugar uh, can be dangerous. This is the, the because the glucose molecules physically fuse to other molecules. Is where HbA1c comes from. That's the glycated hemoglobin molecules. It's showing that it's a representation of how much damage you've had in your body. Roughly three months. Are things that can that it can extend or shorten the lifespan of a red blood cell and change that average. But that's usually what we look at. We think is about three months, and this is what kills diabetics. You know, just it's chronically high blood sugar, and it can you know rot you and damage you from the inside. Having high HbA1c, type two diabetes, or metabolic syndrome greatly increase your risk for heart disease, metabolic syndrome by sixfold, type two diabetes by tenfold, which is you know similar to smoking. So it's it's very bad for you, and our body responds by raising insulin. I think this is a sort of a protective mechanism. Um, you know, when you look at different populations, a lot of them aren't eating carbohydrates, you know, from plants or anything like that. And, and quite often they can be in ketosis and, uh, you know, and so the, um, you know, their insulin levels are quite low and they're chronically, you know, sort of stable and their body's allowed to, to sort of run properly when you, when you raise your insulin as, and so I think that's our, our primary metabolic state. I don't think that's a starvation state or hunger driven state or anything like that. You know, if I, eat, you know, two pounds of ribeye, like I'm, I'm not starving and I'm, I'm certainly not fasting, you know, I've, I've eaten, you know, so I think we've misnamed that as a fasting state. I think that's our normal metabolic state. That seems to be the normal metabolic state of most animals in the wild carnivores, because they eat animals with meat and fat. They go for the fat first. They, they get a lot of their calories from fat and the rest from protein and then herbivores, because that's what they break down 
uh, fiber into, you know, they don't, they don't break down fiber. No vertebrate animal can break down fiber. Uh, it's their gut bacteria that eat the fiber. And as a byproduct, they produce short chain fatty acids and which are saturated fats. And then they die off and are absorbed as protein. So they get like a gorilla gets about 70, 30 fat to protein cows get closer to 80, 20. And so they eat fiber and they eat carbs, but what they absorb is fat and protein. And, and that's, that's similar to us as well um, in the nature. And so I think that that's on purpose. I think that's our normal biological biochemical design. Uh, when you have very high insulin, this causes a lot of, uh, biochemical dysregulation in your body can precipitate things like PCOS, erectile dysfunction, hypertension, and, uh, and a lot of other things, or a lot of people like professor Ben Bickman and others who are arguing that a lot of the disease states are driven by a hyperinsulinemic state. And, one of the things that that lept or that lectin ugh, that insulin can do is it can block a hormone called leptin, which is a satiety hormone. But it's more than that; it's a, it's a cornerstone hormone that that drives and helps regulate a lot of hormones in our circadian rhythm. And insulin can block that, and so that goes and tells you it comes from our stretch receptors. If you eat a lot, this is why we were told to eat a lot of fiber in the 1980s. It says stretch out your stomach release leptin that'll tell your brain that you're full and you'll stop eating. But you know, you have, you have uh, more receptors that are specifically designed to look at nutrients, macro and micronutrients that tracks up the vagus nerve to the brain. And so you find that people that eat a whole bunch of vegetables and things like that, they feel full, they can't eat anymore. They're bloated, but they're like, I'm starving because their brain is just like, you have gotten no nutrients here. Right? So that leptin is uh, not enough. Most of the leptin comes from our adipose tissue, from our fat cells, and that goes to our brain and gives us a sort of a running gas gauge on how much energy we have. Insulin blocks that. So our brain gives a signal that we don't have as much fat in storage, or maybe we don't have any fat in storage if you have a high enough insulin response. And, you know, that that can tell your brain that, you know, you're not doing well. Insulin, high insulin is going to stop gluconeogenesis, it's going to stop lipolysis, stop proteolysis, and it's going to lock down your fat cells. And so now you're not able to raise your blood sugar. You're not able to produce ketones and, and you feel really hungry and you feel starving. Your brain panics because it says you have no energy reserves and your blood sugar is dropping. So you have to eat now. So people panic eat, they overeat. It's very easy to overeat uh, when you're eating a lot of carbohydrates because of that, especially sugar like fructose, because fructose independently blocks leptin and upregulates ghrelin, which is the counter to leptin in your stretch receptors in your stomach. So when your stomach's empty, it releases ghrelin and says like, hey, you don't have anything in the pipeline. So that can compound that, that hunger effect. There are other other things in plants, obviously, different lectins that uh, can actually get into your body through leaky gut. Lectins can also cause leaky gut, uh, so it's a two-for-one. And uh, some of these lectins have been shown in studies to bind to insulin receptors and, and leptin five times more tightly than insulin. So, you know, even if someone's on a ketogenic diet, but they're still eating, you know, plants containing these lectins, they, they can actually have, still have this uh, insulin effect, even though their insulin is actually quite low. So I think that that in a lot of cases that when you're reducing your insulin and normalizing uh, your blood sugar and your insulin, and you're going to, you're going to normalize a lot of other hormones as well. PCOS, the reason that that can uh, be uh, caused by eating a lot of carbohydrates and the genetically susceptible is because women make testosterone first, and then this is converted into estrogen in the ovaries. 
and high insulin actually blocks the conversion of estrogen or testosterone into estrogen. So they get too high testosterone, they get too low estrogen. It can also screw up your uh, growth hormone production, carbohydrates, again, simulate insulin. Insulin blocks the secretion and and action of growth hormone, which is a very important hormone in our, in our general health and aging and uh, building and repair of our body and brain. We kick this stuff out cyclically every 60 minutes for men, every 90 minutes for women, and maximally about two hours after we go to sleep and then while we're sleeping. If you're eating okay. carbohydrates, sorry. If, if, oh, sorry. No, if you're yeah. eating car- carbohydrates and insulin, that's going to block that that issue. So you're going to have uh, an inappropriate response, and you'll you might have uh, appropriate or what you think is appropriate uh, growth hormone, but your IGF one won't won't be as high. You won't you'll you'll you won't get the effects of growth hormone that that you want. And so I think there's the, the carbs are problematic in a lot of ways for that, certainly in the sense that if you're eating it too much and you're, and you're keeping yourself in this hyperinsulinemic state, there are ways around this. You know, there are people that do uh, intermittent fasting and they, you know, because insulin has a long half-life, it's generally taught in textbooks is about 24 hours uh, of, of not eating anything, but really just not eating carbohydrates that your insulin comes down to a more normal level and you can start actually making energy and producing energy from your fat cells. So a lot of people do that by intermittent fasting. And they still eat the same processed food, ultra processed garbage diet, but they get better results. And I think that's that's part and parcel to do with uh, just just keeping your blood sugar at a more lo- normal level and keeping your insulin down as well. So uh, as far as fructose is concerned as well, again, it can compound this, this issue and make you overeat, but uh, it's addictive like these different sorts of drugs. Sorry. And it also can damage... Uh, your body in similar ways of alcohol. Dr. Robert Lustig of UCSF has done, I mean, just yeoman's work. He's done dozens of studies, you know, showing this, that fructose can actually, uh, well, actually is metabolized and broken down in the same byproducts as ethanol. And that can cause the same, the same damage to our body as these breakdown products of ethanol, obviously before they're, they're metabolized. They don't do the exact same things as alcohol, but after they're broken down, they get broken down into the same uh, byproducts. And so you can get fatty liver disease there. This just turns straight into fatty droplets. So this is a major contributor to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Uh, you can get, even get cirrhosis or, and per- peripheral insulin resistance, which is type two diabetes and uh, heart disease and is even implicated in things such as cancer and Alzheimer's. So, you know, I think that there, so there are a lot of reasons to, um, to, to sort of avoid these things. Okay. Thank you. I just wanted to give Georgie a chance. Thank you. Yeah, no, no problem. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. There's a lot there, Georgie, and I and I'm I'm sure I'll I'll let you go with that. So yeah, I mean, uh, I I get the general idea basically that that carbs, you know, called hyperinsulinemia and basically hyperinsulinemia is tied to all of these, uh, you know, disease states down the line. Uh, a couple of things about it. I think sugar gets a lot of blame, and yes, it is high in diabetes, uh, and yes, it does. It is required for the for the glycated hemoglobin. However. Several very interesting studies with humans demonstrated that the rate of increase of glycated hemoglobin is not, sugar is not the only required thing. There needs to be lipid peroxidation. And in people who are given antioxidants, such as vitamin E or vitamin C, they didn't form not nearly as much uh, glycated hemoglobin, um, despite take, eating as much as, if not even more, simple carbohydrates than the people that didn't. So there's something, there's an interplay there between polyunsaturated fats 
and and glucose and the the PUFA, which is a positive, is a required factor for this for the really pathological rise in in glycated hemoglobin. So I think sugar gets like a it's it's not an innocent bystander, but it, but it is a, a partial bystander. It's not the only evil factor in here. Um, something else in regards to diabetes. Yes, blood sugar is high in type two diabetes. Uh, however, uh, invariably, probably less than one in a thousand type two diabetics. 999 of the 1,000 are obese, often morbidly obese. Um, and the reason they have high blood glucose in, in their bodies, actually they get the high blood glucose even if they don't eat the sugar. For a long time, there was a there was an advocacy for people with type 2 diabetes to not eat sugar uh, because it will contribute to the elevated blood sugar, uh, the, the blood glucose. However, uh, recent studies discovered that only about 10% of that, of that blood glucose spike in type 2 diabetics is due to the dietary sugar. The other ninety, the other ninety percent are due to gluco upregulated gluconeogenesis in these morbidly obese people. And if you, uh, they did some investigation. It turns out that in morbidly obese people, cortisol baseline cortisol is higher than optimal. So if you give morbidly obese people anti-cortisol drugs, they not only do, do, do they recover their glucose, the insulin sensitivity, and normalize the blood glucose, they also lose all their excess weight. So it's the fat, really, the extra fat that these people are carrying that is doing something that's causing the 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 the, the hyperglycemia, um, and the dietary glucose plays a very seems to be playing a very small role into the in in in. So it's a hormonal disease, really. It's not necessarily a dietary thing. Now, of course, the diet can cause it, right, and eventually becomes a vicious circle. But basically, uh, there's a study with diabetics, type two diabetics. They gave them seven grams of aspirin daily, a massive dose. But the, one of the effects of aspirin is that it almost completely blocks lipolysis at these levels. So with these morbidly obese type 2 diabetics, 7 grams of aspirin daily completely normalize their blood glucose, which again, I think demonstrated something related to the fat that's causing this hypoglycemia in type 2 diabetics. And there's a gentleman who uh, published something called, in the 1960s called the Randall Cycle. I think his name, his name is John Randall. And basically says that glucose and fats compete for, for for metabolic machinery at all times. So basically, whatever, whichever one of the macronutrients you happen to have in excess at the current time, that's what's going to get metabolized, and the other macronutrient will not. So in uh, there's, there's I think at this point there's a lot of evidence that in, in obese people there is an oversupply of fatty acids. Their the free fatty acids in the blood are very high in you uh, know in, in diabetics, both type one and type two. And if you actually do something to lower the amount of these fatty acids, blood glucose drops as well. There is a drug which is a, a simple derivative of vitamin B3, niacin, and the drug is called ACPIMOX. A-C-P-I-M-O-X. Uh, no, A-C-I-P-I-M-O-X. Uh, and if you look at that, it's, it's basically just niacin with, I think, with an extra hydroxyl group. And what it, this drug does, just, just as niacin does, it uh, very reliably lowers lipolysis. Um, and when you give it to type 2 diabetics, they have a drastic decrease in triglycerides, drastic decrease in, in cholesterol levels, in general, the free fatty acids, and also drop in blood glucose levels. So uh, uh, I think the bioenergetic view here is that glucose gets gets a bad rap, even though it, is, it does have some role in the specifically the, 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 the advanced glycation end products and, and the glycated hemoglobin. But it's really like the, the fat and the lower metabolic rate that, that are actually causing this, this glucose to go into pathways that is not supposed to be going or to stay to the bloodstream simply because it cannot get metabolized. Why it cannot get metabolized? Well, because these people are basically, especially the obese people, they have uh, their lipolysis is elevated. So they always have a, a, a higher than optimal amount of free fatty acids in the blood. And as long as that is the case, 
the body cannot metabolize most of the glucose that they're either eating or producing through the process of gluconeogenesis. If you somehow restrain lipolysis, and insulin, by the way, does that, I'll, I'll say what I'm bringing this up in a minute, uh, then you can normalize, uh, the. you can actually completely reverse insulin resistance despite this person maintaining their morbidly obese state. The, the study with aspirin actually did that. So they gave him seven grams of aspirin daily for two weeks. And at the end of the study, these people biochemically, at least on the biomarkers, were no longer diabetic. However, they were still morbidly obese. And the moment the aspirin regimen stopped, within a few days, they basically recovered, I mean, recovered or relapsed to their previous pathological state. Now, insulin. Uh, yes, definitely hyperinsulinemia can cause a lot of problems, but some of the most successful drugs, and Pharmacist has been trying to, to chase these drugs for decades, some of the most successful drugs for weight loss, which were currently approved, not for that, they were approved for type 2 diabetes, but it was found that actually they result in, in weight loss. And the drug Ozempic, which now, which now every Hollywood actor is taking to manage their weight, uh, its main effect is actually increasing insulin release by about 50%. Um, so it will definitely put you in a state of hyperinsulinemia. However, it results in, in reliable weight loss to the point where now doctors are prescribing it off-label to people who are willing to, uh, you know, who are willing to, to take this drug, even if they're not type diabetic, because it's such a reliable, you know, weight loss inducer. Um, so yes, insulin can cause troubles, but I think the role of insulin as a lipolysis inhibitor uh, is actually important. And a lot of people say, well, hold on a second. If you're blocking lipolysis and all this fat that you've stored is not, you know, it's not getting flushed out of the cells, then how are you going to lose weight? Well, the fat cells themselves can actually process a lot of this fat. Um, and really what's what's controlling how much of this fat you're processing, um, even, even if it stays in the adipocytes, is actually your basal metabolic rate. There's an old drug which is now banned in the United States, but remarkably effective to this day. It's called dinitrophenol. And it's basically a metabolic uncoupler. It r drastically increases your metabolic rate to the point where it can kill you through hyperthermia. Uh, and that's why FDA has banned it. However, it used to be the standard drug, and I think FDA used to have an approval for it, to basically treat morbidly obese people in the early 20th century. But of course, people started taking it off-label, and it took matter into their own hands, and a lot of deaths occurred through the hyperthermia. So now it's banned. But what this drug does is essentially mimics taking thyroid uh, hormone uh, or anything else that uncouples your metabolism, so you're producing a lot more heat and not so much ATP. But your basal metabolic rate about doubles on that drug, and it's a very reliable way to lose weight without exercising and without increasing lipolysis and really without even doing anything, without changing your diet in any way. So, so I think that there are ways to lose weight safely. Um, I, I do like the carnivore diet, again, with, with a few caveats, I mean, at least uh, a few additions that I would do. Uh, but I think glucose gets a lot of bad rap, even though glucose in many cases is more of a bystander than a, than a, direct, uh, than a direct cause. Um, a, a similar example, cholesterol, dietary cholesterol. Not many people know, but in 2017, FDA reversed its dietary guidelines for cholesterol. It said, you no longer need to worry about cholesterol. We've been telling you for 50 years that cholesterol is going to give you heart disease. Guess what? We were wrong. But what FDA didn't do, even though that study that came out on which the, this, this reversal was based, it also vindicated saturated fat. But FDA didn't touch that. I guess big pharma has to say a lot of poop, and you know there's a lot of lobbying pro poop and anti. Anyway, so the study said you can eat all the cholesterol you want. It does not make difference in regards to cardiovascular uh, disease risk. It's actually the cholesterol you synthesize, right? Uh, that is actually much more implicated, and not just the cholesterol, but the oxidized cholesterol. And the thing that leads to oxidized cholesterol is oxidative stress, production of reactive oxygen species, which seems to be happening when the metabolic cycle is blocked. The oxidative phosphorylation is blocked by something. And one of the most reliable metabolic inhibitors 
is the polyunsaturated fats. Uh, uh, they're also raising levels of malonaldehyde, which is that uh, uh, indicator of, of lipid peroxidation. And it's the uh, multiple studies demonstrate an, an almost perfect correlation between glycated hemoglobin and malonaldehyde. So there's something going on with the PUFA that's probably responsible for most of the glycation, advanced glycation end products, which in which glucose participates, but simply because the glucose is not metabolized. Why is glucose mm -hmm. not metabolized? Because too much fat is overcrowding the the, the uh, oxidative machinery in the cell, and it's preventing glucose from being oxidized. And the way this really the the really the bigger role the biggest roadblock um, in this in this co competition between fats and glucose happens at the level of pyruvate That enzyme is kind of like the rate limiting step of the oxidation of glucose. Um, it links glycolysis to the to the oxidative phosphorylation, and fatty acids if you oxidize too many of them or higher than optimal, I should, I should say higher than optimal, it results in a drop of this ratio of um, um, nicotina, nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide plus, which is the oxidized version. And then there's also the reduced version, which is NADH. So NAD plus is the oxidized, NADH is the reduced one. And this this ratio kind of indicates, uh, is an indication of your redox status, how much oxygen you're consuming, whether, you're, whether you have a buildup of electrons or deficiency of electrons. And invariably, we're seeing that in every chronic state, if you actually care to look, you have you have so-called so an excess of electrons. So you're heavily shifted towards reduction. And oxidizing too much fat will put you into that more reduced state. And as long as the NAD to the NADH ratio is lower than whatever pyruvate dehydrogenase needs to, to basically do to, to, to handle the pyruvate coming from glucose, you're going to accumulate pyruvate, a byproduct of glucose, and the cell doesn't like accumulation of pyruvate, and also the cell needs to restore its NAD uh, uh, balance because that's what's needed for the cell to, to be alive. So it's using pyruvate as an emergency oxidant to oxidize NADH back into NAD, but in the process, pyruvate gets converted to lactate. And we're seeing this into in diabetes, in cancer, in cardiovascular in Alzheimer's disease. They have a higher than, than optimal levels of lactic acid in the blood. Lactate, actually, not lactic acid. Um, and again, if you give some of these people, not many studies have been done, most of them are being on animals, but some human studies, hence the drug ACPMOX that was approved. Uh, if you give people drugs that either block lipolysis or somehow inhibit the oxidation of fat, their hyperinsulinemia and, and, and hyperglycemia disappear. There's a famous drug uh, uh, invented by in the former USSR. It's now banned as a doping agent. It's called meldonium, also known as mildronate. And what this drug does is basically interferes with the oxidation of long-chain fatty acids by preventing their transport into the mitochondria. So it's a, in a sense, simplistically, fatty acid oxidation inhibitor indirectly. It doesn't directly mess with the process of beta oxidation, but simply prevents the fatty acids from getting into the mitochondria. That drug is, to this day, is used in over 30 European countries and other countries worldwide to actually treat type 2 diabetes. But, but its effects are actually opposite of that of stimulating fatty acid oxidation. It's the opposite. It's inhibiting it. And as, as soon as you inhibit the excessive fatty oxidation, not, not all of it, but the excess of it, which is seen in diabetic people and people with chronic conditions, uh, the problems with blood, with blood glucose seem to disappear. And that seems to be largely the effect of things like aspirin and vitamin E and niacinamide. They're, they're basically substances that restrain excessive lipolysis. I want to emphasize excessive, not baseline. We always need lipolysis because the, our muscles at rest predominantly burn fat. However, that changes when we're under exertion. Then, the, especially the heart, uh, prefers glucose simply because the process of beta oxidation is slower, much slower than the, than the glucose oxidation. And that if you need an emergency, of, uh, an emergency urge of, of energy, then the, the muscles would prefer to metabolically switch to glucose, right? 
So that's really the gist of it. Um, you know, the metabolic theory says glucose can be a problem, but only if you're already in a state that, that it basically results in its um, inhibited metabolism. And a lot of that inhibition of metabolism can be traced to things like high stress hormones. Cortisol can inhibit glucose oxidation, can stimulate the fatty acid synthase, stimulate the deposition of fat. People with Cushing syndrome, which is a disease of overproduction of cortisol, every single one of them has central obesity and loss of muscle mass. So basically, they look like the lemon with the stick model. It's a lemon with basically <laughs> four sticks, and those are the limbs. If you give them a drug that blocks cortisol, uh, these people not only uh, uh, recover, but they they basically they enjoy sustained weight loss. I want to emphasize sustained because it's not that difficult to lose weight if you watch your calories and exercise, and basically you're sensible about your life. It's difficult to keep the weight off after you've lost it. And I think a lot of the, a, a lot of people don't realize how much their metabolic rate declines as a result of the weight loss if the weight loss is done through me, through through means which result in loss of lean muscle mass as well. There's a show in the states called uh, think, I don't know if it's, if it's still running. It's called, it was called The Biggest Loser. What an app name! Uh, and basically, they were forcing people through this. I think six months of grueling regimen, which included fasting caloric restriction, right? Basically, um, I think they also completely cut out sugar, exercise some ridiculous amounts of hours a day. Uh, some of them got heart attacks during the during the, the, the show, which is, you know, not surprising given how morbidly obese people are. Anyways, every single person who lost the weight and won the show, within six months, not only were they back to the original weight, despite maintaining a caloric deficit, uh, basically they, they stay on the diet that the show gave them, but they, they, they gain even more. So they were devastated. They said, what's going on? I went through six months of hell. I lost all this weight. And now I'm, you know, basically I'm, I'm, I'm no longer in the show. So I, I'm eating the same restricted diet that you guys were giving me. I just, I guess I no longer exercise. And now I'm gaining weight on fewer calories than before. Well, what's, what's happening? And the study that looked at these participants said that the basal metabolic rate declined by, between 40 and 50% as a result of the weight loss. Why? Because while they were fasting and exercising and all the, all these things, yes, they were losing a lot of fat because the lipolysis was upregulated. Uh, however, they were also losing a lot of lean mass. And lean mass is the primary determinant of your resting metabolic rate. So if you, the bioenergetic view says, if you want to lose weight, the safer way to do it is build lean muscle mass, right? Um, and basically, uh, you know, avoid the polyunsaturated fatty acids. Not only are they metabolic inhibitors, they're also, they're also uh, an endocrine factor due to their unsaturatedness. Multiple studies back in the 60s and 70s show that they act similar to estrogen. Uh, they can activate the hypothalamal pituitary adrenal axis, um, so they can put you in kind of a state of chronic stress. And they're precursors to the, you know, uh, some of the most uh, well-known inflammatory mediators, the prostaglandins, the leukotrienes, and the thromboxanes. Aspirin and many of the other non-steroid inflammatory drugs that are in wide use today are doing just that. They inhibit in the conversion of, of the polyunsaturated fats into these inflammatory mediators. So really the metabolic theory says raise your metabolic rate, uh, keep stress lower because cortisol is not your friend. Uh, neither is excessive insulin, but cortisol, by the way, they go hand in hand. People with hyperinsulinemia also have hypercortisolemia because the body seems to be regulating them in, in this way to prevent reactive hypoglycemia. So, which can put you in a coma or potentially even die. Uh, type, type 1 diabetes can get that if they're not, if they're not careful with the uh, injecting too much insulin and not eating sufficient amount of glucose, they can actually die and go into hypoglycemic coma. But the, I think the mechanism the body has developed is that if you if you have if your insulin is too high, the body says, "Oh my God, there's a danger of hypoglycemia." So let me raise cortisol reactively or adaptively, because the primary role of cortisol is actually not so much anti-inflammatory, but it is to keep blood glucose from falling too low. 
Um, and the, re the way cortisol does that is by shredding your muscle tissue and connective tissue, most of them, because most of them are made of, of amino acids. And then these amino acids get converted into glucose through the process of gluconeogenesis, which, which cortisol, by the way, upregulates. And I think that's why these recent studies with humans that do diabetes that show that 90% of the blood glucose, the elevated blood glucose, is coming from gluconeogenesis, not from the diet. When they gave them an anti-cortisol drug, gluconeogenesis went back to normal, and these people's at least the metabolic biomarkers uh, seem to seem to normalize completely. Now, they didn't immediately lose weight, but most of these studies lasted only a few months because these people were in such a poor health. The goal was to normalize them biochemically and then worry about their weight later. Well, I, I, would, I, would, I would agree with, you know, quite a lot of that. And so, you know, I, 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 again, I think we, we have a lot of crossover, you know, uh, on what we're talking, especially with the, with the PUFAs and things like that. Those things are absolutely toxic. They absolutely destroy the function, normal functioning of our, of our mitochondria. And then that's probably one of the, the main drivers of the chronic disease state that we are seeing now in, uh, in, in the modern Western world. Um, and so I, I think that the, the only things that I would, I would sort of, uh, point out, uh, first of all, I, it was my understanding that, that people with type two diabetes or actually is a, is a number of, of these people with metabolic syndrome, type two diabetes, you know, anywhere from 20 to 40%, depending on the studies you look at that actually are, are, are not overweight or obese. They're, they're actually normal weight. Um, so that is, uh, is a bit difficult, um, there, you know, it's like, they don't have, you know, the, the, the high sort of fat obesity sort of content that you're talking about there. Um, and also I certainly agree that this is, this is a lot more complex than just, you know, carbs go up, diabetes happens, you know, there, there's so much more going on in our biochemistry. Um, and, uh, it's, it's very intricate. And so when you, when you start, you know, giving someone seven, I hadn't heard that study. That's amazing. Seven grams of, of aspirin is, is yeah. pretty impressive. Like, I'll, you know, I'll say it after that. Uh, it's a human study. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, you know, coming from a surgeon standpoint, my first reaction is, "Oh, sweet Jesus, no!" You know, like you're just gonna you know. they'll bleed to death, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Like, yeah. So you know, you see people, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, coming in, they have a bad headache. You know, they take a couple aspirin and come in, they have a, and they have a you know a, a cerebral uh, yeah, bleed, but, and you're just like, oh, it's Jesus, no, why? You know, so the like, aspirin is is not the friend of the surgeon, certainly. Um, but that's very interesting. I do think that. You know, it, it has its role, though, right? Because it, this is this is happening in a complex system, and so you know, what we, unless we take medications, we're not going to disrupt those metabolic processes. And so, you know, glucose has a role, and so your blood sugar is going to go up. You're going to have these sorts of problems. So, yes, you can certainly temper uh, these these reactions and and your metabolism with medications. And it's certainly interesting to see the mechanisms and all the interplay. But, you know, if you're not taking these medications and we're just looking at how our body just works naturally, you know, it, it, there is that interplay. There are those things going on. Um, in a lot of these, you know, obviously with the, with the Randall cycle, you know, which I, I totally agree with, um, you know, that would then, you know, further my argument of just saying, don't eat carbs, you know, just, just let your body just uh, run on fat and, and keep going that way. Um, Ozempic, uh, yeah, is, is one of these drugs that, that shows a lot of, uh, great weight loss. Um, you know, just like with the, the biggest loser though, uh, it does seem when people stop it, they get a rebounding effect yeah. and actually put on more weight than they lost. Um, and so that, that, um, yeah, we're going to see it. What, what that does to, to all these people who are on it. I mean, I was just at the pharmacy the other day, picking up some antihistamines for, for my girlfriend and, and there's a sign there that said there's an Ozempic shortage. You know, so this is, <laughs> this is really getting out there. Um, so hopefully, hopefully that doesn't come, come crashing down, but you know, if you're not taking these drugs and you're just allowing your system, you know, to, 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 to work in its normal fashion, 
you know, you know, glucose can matter and, you know, eating carbohydrates can, you know, affect these sorts of things. Uh, cortisol is a major factor. Um, and there are studies in uh, a lot in, in mice. I've seen some in pediatric populations that go on a ketogenic diet for epilepsy and they find a, a marginal increase in their cortisol. Um, but I've also seen other studies that, you know, went on a ketogenic diet and there are thousands of studies with, you know, showing the benefits of a ketogenic diet and not even like the ketogenic diet I would, I would describe to, which is, you know, just meat based because you can have a ketogenic diet that sort of means anything. It just means no carbs and they can actually be high in, in, in polyunsaturated fatty acids and things like that, which I, I don't think would be a good idea. And a lot of these plants and vegetables that have, have all these sorts of defense chemicals that aren't great for you. But even then, you know, there, there are a number of studies that I've found some that actually showed that, that, you know, after eight weeks on a ketogenic diet, they actually found a lowering of their cortisol. Some people argue that the other, you know, because there's mixed, there's a lot of studies that, that show one way or the other. And some people argue that it's potentially a, 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 a marginal rise in cortisol in some populations uh, because they may have been actually deficient in cortisol. Metabolic syndrome is known to suppress your cortisol. And then this may be coming back to physiological levels. Again, going back to first principles, I do think that that's, that's, this is our normal way of eating. And so if we're finding that our cortisol is slightly higher in that context, I would, you know, I would sort of assume or at least think that that could be physiological. There are other other studies. There's one um, that followed obese patients for 24 months. They had significant weight loss and, and there's a statistically significant. Uh, they reduced their cholesterol, raised HDL, lowered LDL, lowered triglycerides, reduced um, their blood sugar significantly, didn't have any change in urea, creatinine, kidney function, anything like that. But they found that um, this, this ameliorated all the metabolic complications associated with hypercortisolism. And in fact, there are actual like, you know, studies that, that argue or even, you know, treatments, uh, that are, that are in place now for people with both ACTH dependent and independent cortisol hypersecretion that a ketogenic diet is advised during and after surgery or medical management of the primary cause of this. So it, while in some studies or in some people, it may raise cortisol. It does seem to ameliorate and correct the symptoms of hypercortisolism. And so I, I think that that's, that lends evidence to the fact that if we're sort of eating a more natural diet, that even if our cortisol goes, goes up or, or down, the effects of hyper, like Cushing's is, is a devastating illness for people. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, and obviously you don't want that. And I don't, I don't want to, I don't want anybody to, to get that certainly not off something that I'm, that I'm suggesting that they do. Um, but it does appear that, that people in a ketogenic, on a ketogenic diet seem to fix those problems. And so maybe their cortisol goes up or down a bit, but the problems associated with hypercortisolism get better on a ketogenic diet, which a carnivore diet is. Um, I've, I haven't checked my cortisol specifically because I just haven't really cared to i haven't thought you, that you don't look like you have high cortisol <laughs> yeah um i have checked it in some of my patients who have been on carnivore for you know two three years uh they've been normal you know they've had normal cortisol levels normal insulin levels normal hb1c and blood glucose and things like that there's more than one way to skin a cat you know, and there, there are definitely ways that you can lose weight in lots of ways. I mean, I used to eat carbs. I used to eat a very normal diet, not a, not an ultra processed diet. I, I was never into that. And I, you know, I played sports and I got into shape and I got very lean. You can do it. I found it's a lot easier to do it 
eating just meat and and not eating the sugar and carbs. Even when I would drink milk, like I love milk. I have to stop myself from eating drinking milk because I just want to drink more of it. And so I don't I don't I don't like that response. I don't like my body sort of you know, wanting to crave something. But I noticed I was sort of, I ran an experiment where I was just like, you know, like the Maasai do it, like maybe some, some high fat uh, milk, maybe adding a bit of, you know, cream into, into whole milk, you know, can I just run on that? And I did that for a few days and felt fine. Everything was fine, but I didn't notice I was, I started to get a little chubby. I'm like, okay, maybe we'll stop that now. And went back to just eating uh fatty steaks and, you know, leaned back up. And so, um, you know, I think that, um, like, again, there, there are a number of different ways to do this. I've found that the the biochemical state that we get into when we're on a carnivore diet and excluding these other things, even milk and dairy, that uh, that seems to be easier for, for people to lose weight and gain health. And that's my main, my main issue is, is gaining health. Um, you know, and you, you can, you can give Ozempic and that can increase the secretion of insulin and that can help with weight loss. But, you know, what's that, that, high insulin level doing to you over the years, you know, I, I think that that can be a problem as well. Yeah. I just, I, the reason I mentioned Ozempic is not that I advertise or suggest it in yeah, any way. No, it's only to illustrate that sometimes insulin promoters can be weight loss inducing. However, mm. uh, with the price of potentially getting acute pancreatitis, which is, which can be deadly. Uh, mm. And that's a known side effect of most of these newer drugs. And I think that's, it's a terrible tragedy that people are jumping on the bandwagon of the Ozempic Simply because it's like a uh, it's a pill or you it's an injection, so it's an easy fix. They go to the doctor, inject them once a week with something, and then they lose weight. Well, you'd have to stay on this for life and risk acute pancreatitis, which eventually will kill you. Uh, mm. Potentially, may even give you pancreatic cancer if it becomes chronic inflammatory chronic pancreatitis. Um, not many people know, but Steve Jobs, an interesting anecdote, had chronic pancreatitis for years uh, because of, because of his primarily fruitarian diet. He didn't. He ate almost. He ate almost no protein uh, and almost nothing else except except uh, fruits. I don't know exactly what kind of fruits he did, he ate, and eventually he died of pancreatic cancer. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Ashton Kutcher, who did the yeah. biopic on Jobs, put himself on the same diet. And if you go on Google and type and look it up, he ended up in the hospital twice during the movie production, twice with acute pancreatitis. So it freaked him out, and his doctor said, "Whatever you're eating." You better stop it now because, you know, I don't want you to end up like Steve Jobs. So something about these extreme diets, basically, so which and the fruitarian diet is almost primarily entirely carbs. I think it's an indication that you can actually err in the side of like eating too many carbs, especially if they're not balanced by the other micronutrients. Um, but as, as far as the, uh, the the ketogenic diet, lowering cortisol, some of them lowering the other one raising, my explanation is it will be due to the, the composition of the fat of the diet. Now, if pupils are activating cortisol release, and they're also precursors to inflammatory mediators, of course, the body will adapt to raise cortisol even more to handle the inflammation, right? Saturated fats actually have a very different, uh, they actually, they, they act as ACTH antagonists, uh, many of them, and the medium to short-chain fatty acids are also GABA agonists. Um, and several human studies demonstrated if you give strong GABA agonists, you can actually treat Cushing syndrome. You can keep the cortisol. It's not going to cure the tumor. If it's a pituitary origin or adrenal origin, but it will keep the cortisol levels normal. Um, and I think the saturated fats, if you're eating carnivore diet where the meat is predominantly from ruminant animals because they mostly produce the saturated fats, I think that will mimic the they will give you the anti cortisol effect because of these saturated fats. If you're eating mostly pork and chicken, and especially the fatty portion of the pork, um, lard has acquired this mythical status of 
high saturated fat diet in animal studies, yet it's not true. Actually, the pigs, the, the, the fat composition is they're very similar to us. Whatever you feed them, that's the kind of fat that they're going to deposit. And if you're feeding them mostly grains, and now the seed oils are mostly made from these seeds, right, including grains, then they're going to get predominantly polyunsaturated fats in their in their diet. So I think the, the, the carnivore diet has great potential if you're careful about the meat that you're eating, right, ruminant animals mostly, and maybe lean chicken, lean birds, things like that. Um, and, and yeah, and basically making sure that the fat that you're, that you're taking, that you're ingesting is predominantly of the saturated and the monounsaturated kind. Limit puffer intake as much as possible. Um, interestingly, there is a study with rats, uh, which was testing what would puffer depletion, because puffer is considered essential still in medical circles, to my knowledge, what would puffer depletion do, do to rats? Um, so they made these rats basically de deficient um, um, on puffer by feeding them coconut oil. And these rats became impossible to, uh, first of all, they never got cancer throughout their lifetime. Second, when they try to basically inject them with several different types of rat tumors, uh, the, the, the cell culture never took hold. Basically, the rat organism killed it. So they were extremely resistant to being killed by, by you know, tumor genesis, to be, uh, by endotoxemia. They injected them with endotoxin, and it took 20 times, I think, the lethal amount that normally would take to kill a rat to kill these, right? And these rats, all they ate was basically coconut oil, and I think meat <laughs> uh, uh, was basically dried, defatted meat, from what I, if I remember correctly, plus the addition of coconut oil. They did not eat any carbs. So it shows that if you, maybe it really is pufa that is basically the main driver of all of these things. And if you can eliminate the pufa, then you can probably eat, and of course, avoiding the plants, but they are also very high on pufa. Uh, then after that, you can probably eat pretty much whatever you want, but the things that that remain are not that many, which is milk, eggs, and meat. <laughs> well, I 100% agree with all that. So yeah, uh, there's, there's definitely no disagreement there. Yeah. Lots of good stuff. Um, we could probably go on for a long time. Uh, you know, I think the, the main thing to take is uh, a little bit of self-experimentation right? I think everyone's yeah. a little bit different. Um, I've noticed that with myself, you know, I was fairly meat-based. I've added in some fruits after talking with Georgie and Jay Feldman. And it's interesting. I originally put on a little weight, but it actually came back eating the same amount. I added about 700 calories, but my weight and then put on weight, then six, about five, four to six months later, the weight came back to my normal and I was still eating the, 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 uh, more calories and adding in the fruit. So you know, I think something to be said about increasing metabolic rate. And I think the, the big thing that, you know, Georgie talks a lot about is um, fat is almost like using fat as fuel is almost like a backup system. And, you know, like you've talked about Georgie, how fasting and um, even low carb can sort of maybe even slow down metabolic rate potentially, while, you know, you should look more towards increasing metabolic rate by maybe eating more and adding in some whole food carbs and this might actually more be more optimal because a lot of times if we look ancestrally yes there's ancestors that ate all rice a lot of rice right and there's ancestors that ate a lot of meat so that you can see both extremes but i think most importantly is you know what is optimal not necessarily what was done ancestrally and so you know everyone's got to sort of go through their um self-experimentation but you know i i, I felt it was important to get you know both perspectives on and to discuss you know these two variables 
uh, with one clarification, um, when you're when you're fasting, and, and which of course results in upregulated lipolysis, I think the reason we're getting the anti-metabolic effect is not necessarily the fat per se, but unfortunately, when we're eating fats that are of mixed nature, they, there's saturated fat, PUFA, and monosaturated fat, the body seems to uh, uh, prioritize the oxidation of the saturated and monosaturated fats, while the PUFA is predominantly stored. Uh, so conversely, when we're doing lipo when we're fasting and basically in a state of elevated lipolysis, we'll be releasing predominantly PUFA from the stores, and that I think will cause uh, it, it, it. That's probably the main the main driver behind many of these uh, bad effects that we're seeing from um, from basically elevated free fatty acids in the blood is because most of them are actually uh, polyunsaturated fats. If you look at babies. They're in ketosis, I think, for the first week or something of like uh, when they're when when they're born. But the fats that are in their blood, if you compare the fatty acid profile, it is heavily shifted in favor of saturated fats. They're about like ninety percent saturated fat, and babies don't seem to be getting any problems with with elevated lipolysis. However, if you if you take a type two diabetic and you basically stress them out and they 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 flood their blood with these polyunsaturated fats, now multiple studies have come out and said. The kidney damage that we're seeing in diabetes, um, especially acute kidney injury, um, the pancreatitis, acute pancreatitis that we're seeing in uh, sometimes in, in type 2 diabetic patients, um, cardiovascular disease, like the, the actual heart attack, all, a lot of these things are actually caused by the predominance of the polyunsaturated fat acids in the blood when they're released due to stress from the from the stores. Um, so, so if you're going to be Losing weight through lipolysis, I think it, it will help if you're taking something like vitamin E just to keep the peroxidation in check. Um, and and also uh, maybe eating, taking like a, a spoon of coconut oil, maybe a couple of times a day, because it's, multiple studies show that it's the, the ratio of the saturated fat to the polyunsaturated fat in the blood that also determines to a great degree uh, uh, how much damage the PUFA would do. Not just directly PUFA itself because it's unsaturated, it can peroxidize, but also the saturated fats are, are inhibitors of the Cox and Lox pathways through which the PUFA produces most of these inflammatory mediators. So if you're going to be doing lipolysis, my, my suggestion would be to make sure you have an antioxidant, like such as vitamin E, uh, and or uh, consume an addition of, of uh, easily metabolizable saturated fats as found in coconut oil or beef tallow, but most people are not going to eat beef tallow. <laughs> a spoon of beef tallow just doesn't sound very appetizing, but refined coconut oil is tasteless and odorless, so it shouldn't be that, that much of a problem to add a, add a tablespoon a couple of times a day. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, I would agree with that. I, I think there, there's so many things, and I would even I would even submit that, you know, while I, I, I think that carbs and sugar can be problematic, I, I do think that the PUFAs and omega-6s are, are worse, and I think that they're a major, major, major driver of our, our disease state and so many different problems. Uh, you know that we're we're contending with now. There's a, there's a great book that came out by uh, uh, Dr. Chris um, uh, Kenobi, and it's just it's called the Ancestral Diet Revolution. It just came out recently, and he um, and he really argues that this really is is the seed oils. This really is the you know, the, the pufas and things like that. And he shows a lot of very good evidence. He has like over 1,300 you know scientific references in his books. Very well researched and and cited. So. It's um you know he it does seem that there there is a very strong connection between you know not only disease but obesity you know that that we we see people in obese populations uh you know the the, the more overweight they are they actually have a higher percentage of uh, omega sixes you know that they're storing in their body and there's a, there's a few traditional populations alive right now that 
you'll have very very high saturated fats you know like like the maasai and uh, i forget the name of the of the tribe but it's it's uh you know it's one of the pacific islands and they just drink a ton of coconut milk a lot of coconut and uh, you know fish and things like that no carbs so very high saturated fat diet really no carbs very lean very healthy very strong just like the maasai and then in papua new guinea there's a there's a, a tribe they will eat some pig but they don't eat as much but a lot of their uh, diet are um, yams. They have like like, uh, like sweet potatoes, right? There's mm-hmm. like a hundred different varieties of sweet potatoes that you use. So actually, a majority of their their calories come from these carbohydrates, from these these uh, these sweet potatoes. But because they're not getting any of the the, the seed oils and nothing's processed, um, they're again lean, strong, healthy, not getting you know the, these rates of disease. So I, I do agree that I think that the the pufas are a major major driver of disease. They're just not natural. They didn't even exist you know, a hundred years ago. And so, you know, cottonseed oil in the late 1800s and then, you know, Crisco and and uh, canola oil. And, you know, after that, like in the fifties and things like that with canola oil, stuff is toxic. I mean, it just does, doesn't exist in our, in our diet at all. It never existed in our diet before that. So how are we going to argue that this is biologically, uh, you know, that we're biologically designed for something that didn't exist, you know, when we were being designed. Yeah. So uh, I definitely agree with that. There's, um, you know, as far as antioxidants are concerned, this is a good thing about, you know, sort of eating, you know, high, high meat based diet is, is again, your urea is going to go up. And this is, this is one of our body's strongest antioxidants. And so this is going to carry a lot of that weight and a lot of that burden for people in an antioxidant point of view. You can obviously take other antioxidants like, you know, uh, vitamin E and things like that. I wouldn't do it in the, the plant form because while plants do have antioxidants, yeah. they also have a lot of oxidants. And so they don't, you know, that can, that can definitely offset. Um, and then just the last thing would be, I mean, there are, there are some studies that show that uh, there are, that you can actually get an increase in your basal metabolic rate. There was a study out of the BMJ in 2018 looking at the effects of low carbohydrate diet on energy expenditure uh, during weight loss. Uh, this was a randomized trial, and they found that uh, in the you know very restrictive uh, carbohydrate group, so they really, really were restricting carbohydrates the most, that they had... Um, uh, on an average, they, they uh, had 278 kilocalories more per day of en- energy expenditure, and in the the low carb but not no carb group uh, was was better than the just the normal carb group. Um, that's not the only that's not the only factor. I'm, I'm you know I'm definitely uh, in agreement with that, and I'm sure there are a lot of other factors that that go into that. But you know I do think that. You know, being, uh, you know, that there's a lot of evidence for a ketogenic diet. And with the caveat, that important caveat, that the studies that look at and the people that use more animal fat, more saturated fat do better. Yeah. And there are, there are studies with ketogenic diets uh, with cancer that showed very good results. And there's one that have middling results. And I, and I think that's probably the dis- distinction there. Also, some of them will look and say, this is a ketogenic diet and you can eat as much as 50 grams a day. And I would say, no, no, you can't. Um, you know, especially when we're dealing with something like cancer, but a lot of, uh, but some of the studies with looking at carbohydrate or uh, carbohydrate restrictive diets, like ketogenic diet, um, some of the ones that will have middling results, you'll, you'll notice that they, they don't limit PUFAs. They, they don't, you know, prioritize saturated fats and things like that. And I think, I think that's a major, major reason why you see a difference. Maybe the big takeaway is if you're eating high carb diet, you better keep fat low because all those carbs and the insulin that they raise, they're going to prevent the fat from being oxidized. So you're going to store it almost completely. If you're eating a high fat diet, 
then it's probably not a good idea to eat also a lot of carbs with it because the fat diet is going to prevent the metabolism of the glucose and it's going to float around, cause all kinds of problems, increase lactic acid, high blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. So, and then if you're eating the high, the high fat diet, of course, goes without saying, make sure it's predominantly saturated. So maybe both are both both pathways are okay. It's really when these two macronutrients class, and especially uh, because they, they are competitive in nature when it comes to their metabolism, and especially if you're eating the PUFA, which is also has an extra anti-metabolic effect of its own, and inflammatory, then really all hell breaks loose. It would be better to eat predominantly one or the other, and if you're eating the fat, it would be mostly saturated. That, that, that would be my takeaway, I think, from this discussion. <laughs> No, I, I, I would definitely agree with that uh, as well. You know, that, that's why, you know, people saying, well, you need a varied diet. You need to sort of eat everything. It's like, no, no, you really don't want to do that. Uh, you want to be very limited. You know, the diet is, is very specific in nature and, uh, and it needs to be for us as well. You know, all animals eat very specific things and that's due to their biological design and, and we're animals. And so, you know, those same, yep. those same physical, physiological and biological laws apply. And so, yeah, I would agree with that. That um, you know, again, there's there's more than one way of doing things. I think that you know, just carnivores is probably a, you know a very good way, if not the best way, uh, at least from what I've found in um, from my research. But yeah, if you're if you're if you're doing one or the other, and you're and you're being careful about that and limiting or eliminating uh, PUFAs, then I think I think you can get very good results either way. Yeah, there's a tribe tribe called the Simani. They're in the Amazon, and they eat ninety percent carbohydrates, mostly from tubers. They eat almost no fat simply because it's not available. Uh, and basically, whatever protein they get is either they killed some fish. Tropical fish is mostly saturated fat and protein, uh, or some animals in the trees because they live in the jungle. Uh, and these people have, I think, they have no confirmed case of cardiovascular disease, despite. Uh, on autopsy, because they they have autopsy, some of them they do have the lesions in their in their uh, basically in their in their arteries. But for some reason, that plaque never never you know uh, separates and causes a clogging. Um, and their levels of the inflammatory biomarkers such as CRP uh, and erythrocyte sedimentation rate and interleukin one and six are about one third of what we're seeing in the Western populations. So I think plenty of examples that the native cultures know what they're doing and they can adapt to whatever nature provides there uh, and they can thrive as long as they're not being fed these mass-produced um, uh, empty calories, basically, which were created for only one reason, and that is profit, and they were never designed with, with health in mind. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll just finish off with just one point in the, in the sense that like, I think the goal is optimal health and optimal health is more than just looking at weight loss. I mean, I think that's one aspect of it, but you know, great energy, restorative sleep, clear skin, good libido, peaceful mood, low stress, you know, lean muscle mass, well-functioning gut. I think these are all pillars and things that we should look at other than just having a six pack. Right. So yeah. I, I think that's just something to keep in mind as, as we move on. And and yeah, so I, we can we can talk about a lot of things, but I'll say that like going carnivore keto or low carb, which I did for a, quite a while, is great. If you, especially if you're just coming off a standard American diet, I mean, yeah. even going vegetarian is is a better move uh, um, from the standard American diet. So you can get improved outcomes both ways. Just but you know, obviously, I would I would advise and just you know, with you, like we talked about today, is you know, eating more protein, cutting out gut, gut stressors. Um, removing seed oils and increasing saturated fats and then eliminating junk food, I think are just a good place to start. Um, and you know, you can titrate carbs how you like, 
um, depending on on how you're feeling and things like that. Um, I've grown to sort of enjoy bringing back some whole food carbs because I think we say carbs and that's such a broad term. You know, there's a lot of there's refined carbs and there's some whole food carbs that I think could possibly be beneficial. Um, but again, it's sort of that self-experimentation. And I would add avoiding chronic stress because the sympathetic and parasympathetic system are antagonizing each other. So as long as you're under chronic stress, no matter how optimally you eat, um, a lot of that a lot of that food is not going to go towards its its uh, the goals and the purposes that it, that, that, that that it was that, that it was meant to be. Yeah. Uh, basically, high cortisol uh, slows down digestion, inhibits the release of a lot of the enzymes from the pancreas, such as lipase, amylase, and protease. So you're not going to be digesting as much of the food. Um, and then, of course, it uh, uh, makes the 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 intestine, the enterochromaffin cells in the intestine produce a lot more serotonin. So you're going to have gut this gut uh, imbalances. Your digestion will be suffering. So if you're under chronic stress, uh, I think that needs to be addressed as well. Because if you, if that does not get addressed, I think ultimately, uh, you know, uh, no diet is going to help you. And chronic stress is now recognized as the perhaps the main factor behind cardiovascular disease and probably cancers. Um, and lately, even even Alzheimer's disease. So, if you're if you're working twelve hours a day, um, and you feel like you're killing yourself, then I think that that is not going to help much. Of course, it, it always helps to eat more healthy, but I think the elephant in the room would be you, we're not meant to be in a chronic flight, a fight or flight response twelve hours out of the day. In nature, when the gazelle is being chased by the lion, it lasts maybe a, no, actually thirty seconds. Either the lion catches it. Or the gazelle runs away, and then the stress for both animals goes down, right? Not 12 hours a day. There's this hyper uh, activation of the adrenal system that we're currently living under, and I think for most people in the Western world, it's like that. I think that can also be a very big factor in chronic disease, and can it can undercut, it can undermine a lot of the positive effects of dietary choices. Um, you know, and people are like, well, I changed my diet, uh, now I'm eating all the healthy foods, and I'm still sick. Well, if your cortisol is high, then you know if it's higher than normal and it stays elevated longer than what is optimal, um, then you, you're probably not going to be in optimal health long term. Well said. Yeah. Uh, just to add to that, there was a there was an interesting study looking at cardiovascular disease, and it was an interventional trial, uh, and and looking at stress. And so they they had people meditate for forty minutes a day. That was it. That was the only the only intervention, and they found that they actually uh, were, were able to reverse their atherosclerotic plaques just by meditating. So no medications or additions or dietary changes. So just that that you know conscious de-stressing actually was it was clinically proven to actually reverse cardiovascular disease. So it's one of the few things that has. There are other studies um, that that have come out uh, from like Dr. Um, uh, Dr. Mara in the U S showing that, that reducing visceral fat can actually remove blockages as well. And, 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 and revitalize the cerebral vascular perfusion, um, on, uh, on, on imaging, you know, showing that this is, is objectively, you know, improving that as well. Uh, but I really thought that was, that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Also, no. you know, caffeine, we're, we're quite reliant on caffeine and that can, that can raise cortisol and, and raise your stress and put you in that, sort of hyper hyper vigilant state a, a lot as well so um yeah i think that's that's very good advice you know uh diet is a major major piece of the puzzle but it's not the only one you have to optimize other parts of your life as well and if you're feeling like you know you're you're overworked and, and your job is killing you it probably is you know and i've um i've uh i've found that uh optimizing other parts of your life like diet and, and so on and not relying on caffeine that has allowed me to work 
stupid hours and not be stressed out and not be freaked out and and be able to to weather that pretty well as well. So it all comes it all comes together. It's all a package. It's not just one thing that's going to fix everything. It, you need, you need everything working well together for optimal health. Totally agree. Um, well, this was great, guys. You know, maybe in a few months we'll we'll get part two going. Uh, <laughs> but where's the best place, uh, Georgie? Where's the best place for people to find you? I know you got your blog. Well, that's pretty much it. Uh, the blog is uh, heydut.me, H-A-I-D-U-T.me. And that feeds you to Twitter, where basically it's Twitter, twitter.com slash heydut, the same, the same alias. Um, and uh, I used to answer personal emails, but people would start really overwhelming me with, like, with their medical histories and such. And um, <laughs> I also don't want to get into a situation where, because they're obviously asking for diagnosis, treatment, and obviously I'm not a doctor, and I always advise them to go to the doctor but if they had poor experience with the medical system, many of them have given up on it, or at least they don't they don't interact with their doctor as often as they should be. So they kind of rely on me for that. I don't want that. I mean, I'm kind of trying to move away from that. So I post, I think, enough for people to be making conscious decisions of what to show to their doctor and decide with their doctor or healthcare provider what to do or what not to do. I'm, I, 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 try, I don't want to be in a position where I'm giving advice of what to do and what not to do. Yeah, and uh, I'll, I'll definitely put links in the show notes. And and Dr. Chafee, best place for people to find you? Uh, yeah, well, I have a YouTube channel, just my name, Anthony Chafee, MD, as well as my Instagram is the same as Anthony Chafee, MD. That's where I sort of do most of uh, my posts and things like that. And I have a, a, a podcast called The Plant Free MD, uh, just sort of just to, just to telegraph that right there. <laughs> that, mm. That's sort of my thing. And uh, and then I'm on Twitter, Anthony underscore Chafee. And those are the main ones. And people can find um, find me through that. Excellent. Well, again, appreciate you guys uh, getting together on different time zones. And we made it work. And uh, thanks for coming on the on the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there. And you've chosen to listen to mine. And I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.